The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When it comes to sports, these two players bring new meaning to the term double trouble. And then we travel to Vietnam to take a look at a few odd ghost stories coming out of that region of the world. When the United States sent in their troops to try to deal with the Viet Cong, little did they know they may be going face-to-face with a supernatural foe, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a ton of stuff to cover today. So we're going to slide right into this like it's just one big old slip and slide. First off, while we're going down the slip and slide, let's give a high five to our latest Patreon, Robert Paulson. Robert Paulson, he also did the artwork for the Ouija flyer that we have, so thank you very much for that. He got a shout out for that. Now he's getting a shout out for being a Patreon supporter. Really, really appreciate it. Once again, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you can't support the Patreon, totally understand that as well. Just help get the word out about the show really, really helps out a lot. Robert, let's go ahead and toss you those keys of that Dead Rabbit Dirigible because we are flying to a basketball game. Dribble, 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 burnt, 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 whatever sound those balls are make. Burnt, 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 burnt. Apparently they're drawn. They're bouncing frisbees off of stuff. They're playing this basketball game. We're flying high above the stadium. We got the best seats in the house. If you happen to have telescopes for eyes, we're watching the Washington Wizards play the Boston Celtics. It's April 30th, 2017. I want to give a shout-out to Roger Sherman. He's a journalist for TheRinger.com. He's the one who brought this to my attention. We're watching this game, Washington Wizards versus the Boston Celtics. And during the game, ah, my ankle! Boop! Little whistle. Little Steamboat Willie whistle. Markeith Morris, he plays for the Washington Wizards. Ah, my ankle! He's down on the ground. He's like, Wizards, help me with your magical powers! The team's like... We're not real wizards, bro. We've been telling you that all season long. He's like, help me, almighty oh ones. So Markeith Morris is helped. isn't helped by his wizard cohorts. He's actually taken out of the game, and the medics check him out. His ankle got hurt really bad, and people are like, oh, man, this is the Eastern Conference semifinals. This is a very important game, and this is bad. Markeith Morris suffered a pretty bad ankle injury. Who knows when he'll be able to play again? May 2nd, 2017, it's the next game of the playoffs, and announcing Markeith Morris, he's running out, he's running out, he's jumping extra hard on his ankle, see guys, we are wizards, I healed my ankle, oh yeah, yeah, and the Celtics are kind of looking at each other, like that's kind of weird, he's doing jumping jacks, doing one-legged jumping jacks, he's totally showing off at this point, Boston Celtics are like, what, and the ref's like, play ball, so they're dribbling, And Markeith Morris actually plays his best game of the playoffs on this busted ankle. He's spinning around on his ankle after each shot. He's doing ballet moves. So the conspiracy theory starts. Not that they're actual wizards. Not that they actually perform some sort of black magic back there. They sacrificed the Boston Celtic at full moon. 
used his essence to heal Markeith Morris. No, it's actually more interesting than that, because it's real, maybe, allegedly. Markeith Morris has an identical twin named Marcus Morris. They're both professional NBA players. Marcus was with the Detroit Pistons, and they had already been knocked out of the conference. I guess you could say their Pistons are out of alignment, eh? Eh? As I'm nudging Robert Paulson, he's trying to fly in the dirt. Get it? Get it? Keep nudging him. Keep nudging him for the rest of the episode. The Detroit Pistons were out of alignment. They couldn't, they couldn't fire on all cylinders. So they got kicked out of the conference. So his brother Marcus Morris was just hanging out, right? Sitting at home. And this is a conspiracy theory that Markeith and Morris switched places. The guy who played in that other game was his brother. Now, of course, you could push back and say, yeah, they're identical, and yeah, they are both professional NBA players, but have they ever done anything like this before? They actually have played for each other before. They they did it before back in 2013, when they were playing for the Amateur Athletic Union Basketball. One of them got injured, and the other one was fouled out, so they just swapped jerseys, <laughs> and the dude who fouled out went in and played as his brother. Now, Markeith Morris is covered in tattoos, and so is Marcus Morris, which usually would be a way to tell them apart, but they have identical tattoos. So there's two questions here. One, did they do it? And two, does it matter? The answer to that second question is, yeah, it would totally matter because so much money's on the line. Otherwise, you could just have, you could only, like, imagine you're a basketball coach, right? And you're at, like, the... uh the hospital, right? And you're like looking at all these babies and you're like, I'm looking for the newest NBA players. I got a scheme going. And they're like, sir, get out of here. You're not even wearing protective gear. He's like, ah. So he comes back in. He's disguised as a doctor now. And he's like, hmm. Yeah, look at this one. It's a little pudgy. Look at this guy. Can't even support the weight of his own head. Ah, these babies suck. And then he turns around and he sees triplets. And he's like, hmm. He goes to the parents and he goes, tell you what, I'm big shot sports agent guy. What if I could guarantee you that all of your kids will be major league basketball players? And the guy's like, what are you talking about? They're like three days old. He's like, hear me out, hear me out. We put them in an elite training school and we train them. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, guys. Only one of them will play at a time. Seeing the other two, they all have to get matching tattoos as well. He says that under his breath. Not super loud like I did. And... You get one of them, we'll get them, we'll come up with one singular name for them. The other two will just be hiding in the shadows. And then if something happens to the first one, then the second one can sub in. I actually realize this is a terrible idea because you have to not only hope that one of them is genetically gifted enough to become a professional athlete and have the drive to do it, you have to get all three of them. Because it wouldn't make sense if you had the first one get injured and he's like this super tall, lean, hardcore basketball player, super dedicated. And then the second one goes in and he gets like DUI or something. He can't. He couldn't even make it to the stadium. He got pulled over. And then the third one's just like some dude. He's like some architect or something. He doesn't have all of his tattoos are of like building blueprints and stuff like that. He's getting ready to break his brother out of prison. Yeah, it wouldn't work. You would so sorry if you if there was a sports agent right now writing down notes. He's like, "Whoa, this podcast is gold! I can't wait to do this." Step one: invade a maternity ward. But did they switch places? We will never know. The only people who would truly know that is the Morris twins, and they aren't talking. 
I was trying to think of a twin pun. What's a twin pun for like being quiet? Because they, <laughs> because they're just quiet. Because they're just they're good at keeping secrets and getting the same tattoos. That's all I can come up with. Email me your twin slash quiet jokes. I will enjoy them greatly. Robert Paulson, let's go ahead and jump out of this Dead Rabbit dirigible, parachute down. It's a very inefficient way to switch vehicles. And then we're going to take the Carpenter Copter. Let's go for a little ride. So, Robert, take us on out to the Bronx. It's 1965. There we're going to meet three young friends, William, John, and Jerry. These kids have all been friends since high school. They're walking through the alleyways. They're pushing. I just imagine Bronx is just one giant trash-strewn alleyway with, like, doors every so often. Come on, Willie! They're pushing each other through the garbage-strewn alley, hoping one of them has a superhero origin story. They're trash, man. They were trash. They were pushed into a barrel of radioactive trash. They do it all day long, and then they come home, and they're like, oh, I don't have any superpowers. They were friends from kindergarten to high school. And in 1965 is when they're graduating. Now, William and John, both, their families are better off. They live in the much better alley. They they live in the nicer alley, full of nicer garbage in the Bronx. So they're able to actually afford to go to Notre Dame. Jerry didn't really have that. He was raised by a single mother. They had just a single trash can. They didn't have a full dumpster like William and John. He wasn't able to go to Notre Dame. And William said that he lost contact with Jerry over the years, which is what happens to all of us, right? We all lose contact with Jerry's. Now, while he's in Notre Dame, during the summer, he comes back home. He works a construction job. William. I'm talking about William here. In 1967, it's one of those summers he's working construction. He's staying with his mom, and he said the work was just grueling. It was, I mean, construction work is always hard labor. So one day he's walking home to his mom's house and he could barely lift each foot off the ground. He's like, I wish I had a twin. I wish I had a twin that could walk home and then I would just magically appear at home or better yet, just show up to my job in the first place. But I don't. He's walking home and as he's walking through the neighborhood, it's starting to get dark. The streetlights are kind of on. It's that moment of dusk. Now, in his neighborhood, they have St. Helena Church. It's on one side of the street. On the other side of the street is Gleason's Funeral Home. And as he's walking through his old neighborhood, he actually sees Jerry, who he hadn't seen in years. It had been two years since he even talked to Jerry. He sees Jerry exit a building and is now walking towards William. Now, we've all been here, guys. We've all been here where we're just really tired. We're exhausted. We see someone... Or we look at our phone and there's a phone call coming through and we just don't want to pick up the phone, right? We're just so tired. And that was William in this point. William has just had an exhausting day. It was a super hot summer. He pulls his hard hat down a bit, kind of shadows his face, looks down, pretends that he doesn't see his old friend Jerry, and walks right by him. When he gets home, his mom is on the phone and he can tell almost immediately something is wrong. His mom is on the phone with his friend John, who he'd known all of his life and was currently in Notre Dame with. And the mom hands the phone to William. Says, you got to talk to John. William grabs the phone and John says, I have bad news. Jerry Fox, Jerry Fox was killed in Vietnam. 
His body is at Gleason's funeral home, and, and it, it, he'll be waked there tomorrow. Now, this obviously doesn't make sense to William. He just saw Jerry just a couple minutes ago walking down the street. And he realizes that the building he saw Jerry walk out of was the funeral home. He said, I didn't even know Jerry was drafted. I didn't even, I didn't even know that he'd gone over to Vietnam. What are you telling me? He's, he's dead now? John's like, yeah. Now, if you were able to go to college at that time, you could actually defer the draft. But because Jerry didn't have the opportunity to go to college, he got drafted. William doesn't believe this. William's saying, I just saw him. I just saw him down the street. And John's like, listen, I, I don't know what that was, but he's passed away. He's dead. He, they're going to have a service tomorrow. Because this is the neighborhood they all grew up in. They all worshipped at that church. Maybe a couple weirdos worshipped at the funeral home. I don't know. But it was this area they grew up in. It would make sense that Jerry's body was brought back there. The next day, William is at the wake. And he meets Jerry's mom. Once again, you know, he knew her growing up, but she's just besides herself, right? She's upset about the whole thing. So what happened was, and this detail actually gave Jerry's mother a sense of comfort because she knew this was the son that she raised. On July 12th, 1967, they had the Battle of Map Sheet 65363. I mean, not everything's the Battle of the Bulge or the Battle of the Rhine. Most battles are just fought as coordinates. They're just a little ledger sheet. This is a true story, by the way. Like, I was actually able to find the battle that this kid fought and died in. So, the main story that William is telling, he wrote himself on the Notre Dame alumni blog. And there's tons of photos, uh, not photos of ghosts and stuff like that. There's a blurry photo of Jerry walking on the street. This is, a, this is about as well documented as a ghost story as you can get. It's a very fascinating story. So, But I was able to actually find this battle that he fought in. It was in the Ladrang River Valley. Jerry and 24 other men in Bravo Company were caught in a sustained ambush. So I was reading the battle report. and It was just wave after wave of Viet Cong were pinning them down. The U.S. Army was trying to send in helicopter units, reinforcements to get these guys out of there. They couldn't. There was just too much enemy fire. There was uh, environmental issues as far as like smoke and fog and everything going on. You had like a new commander in charge of the area. You had a, just a, basically a cluster of bad events going on. The soldiers who came to Jerry's mother's door to give her the news of her son, told her, your son fought to the last bullet. He was actually the last man standing in his group. And he just kept firing and firing and firing, killing as many of the enemy as he can. He was the last one, and then they shot him in the neck. He died very quickly. Now, that would be a horrible thing, obviously, if someone came up to you and said, hey, this happened to your loved one. But it could also give you a sense of, one, that he died quickly, right? They're not like, and then after the fourth day, the bullet wound (laughs) festered and the maggot set in. Like, a a bullet to the neck is a pretty quick end. But also knowing that your son was a hero. Not only a hero, he's a tough guy. He's from the Bronx. Everyone was dead and he wouldn't give up and he kept shooting until he couldn't shoot anymore. But William had another issue going on here. He wasn't just mourning the death of his friend. He was, he was incensed with the fact that he turned his back on his friend when he needed him the most. Obviously, William couldn't be there in Vietnam with him. 
But he took this encounter with Jerry as Jerry reaching out to him. A lifelong friend that not even death could separate. That his friend walked out of that funeral home as a specter, as a ghost. But William was just too tired to bother. Pulls his hat down and keeps on going. That haunted him. That action haunted him for decades. He always thought, I turned my back on Jerry when he needed me most. And it's really interesting to take a look at this blog. It's going to links in the show notes, of course. But he ends up, the story doesn't end there for him. That's obviously the end of the ghost story. But he carries this guilt for decades. He, to this day, he wears a bracelet with his buddy's rank and uh, date of death on it. He wears this metal bracelet on his hand. He says, whenever I'm sitting there and I think I can't do it, I can't do it. He has this voice inside of him saying, you're living for two people. You got to do it. He uses it as a motivating factor. At one point, he visited with his family, the Vietnam Memorial. He's there with his granddaughter, and he finds his buddy's name, and he begins sobbing, and his granddaughter's like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he's like, what do I tell her, that I turned my back on my friend? This is something that's haunted him. It's funny, because the ghost part of it, the haunting part of it, it wasn't what tormented him, as it would normally be in a story. It's the ghost in your closet that torments you, not the fact that you left the ghost in the closet all these years. You're like, I should have invited him out for brisket. This idea that he let his friend down. He ends up, even later, visiting Vietnam. And he said that he wasn't able to visit the battlefield, which probably a great idea. There might be some, like, punji sticks out there, some landmines. When he was in Vietnam, he actually forgave the people of Vietnam for killing his friend. He was able to go, "I, I can understand why this was going on. I don't harbor any ill will towards your nation. He forgave the people of Vietnam, for killing his friend. And even then, he couldn't forgive himself. He ends his blog when he's talking about all of these things he's done to kind of change his life. He ends his blog with this phrase, it works, but does it atone? So even after all that, even after living his life for two people, trying to honor Jerry's memory, forgiving the people who killed him, he still doesn't know whether or not he atoned for walking past that ghost. I think it's a really interesting story because you have the paranormal aspect. And it again, this is about as well-sourced as a ghost story can be. Most ghost stories are, I saw something. There's All the stuff with like the orbs and the stuff like that, that's actually less reliable because we can go, we can replicate orbs right away. But when you have a guy who saw this ghost back in 1967 spent his entire life trying to get over that, and then goes to a Notre Dame alumni website, writes the story out with photos of himself using his real name. That's about as well-sourced as a ghost story can get. Really. And the fact the battle took place, the guy was really alive, all of this stuff, you can verify everything. This is probably as well-sourced as they get. So I find that fascinating. It takes a lot to put yourself on the line, especially when you're like a professional in the world, too. It's interesting because a lot of times that the worst damage we can do is the damage we do to ourselves, right? Sometimes we damage ourselves more than any ghost or ghoul could. Now, let me go ahead and wrap it up like this, because that's a fairly kind of downer ending. Let's go ahead and end it like this. Robert Paulson, we're firing up that carpenter copter one last time. We're going 
to Vietnam. We're back in time. The Vietnam War is in full bore at this point. We're flying over the battlefield. This is a really, really odd story. It's not super long, but... So, I found out about the story of William and Jerry on a website called Military.com. And the article was Four Creepy Ghost Stories from the Vietnam War. It was written by Blake Stilwell. Now, it's Military.com. It's not an actual... It's not run by the military, as far as I know. The U.S. military, that would be a horrible editor to work for, right? Constantly screaming in your ear. It's pretty much stuff like, oh, a drone beat an airplane in a, in a race or something like that. And then here's some new, look at brand new guns for 2020. These guns shoot 100 times faster. It's military stuff, right? But every so often, you know, Halloween comes up. People want puff pieces and things like that. So Blake Stilwell wrote four creepy ghost stories from the Vietnam War. One of them was the story of William and Jerry. They had one about a Saigon hotel that's supposedly haunted, that the bodies of four dead virgins were buried under each corner of it to protect it from curses or stuff like that because it had 13 floors. Here's a tip. Just build 12 floors so you don't have to bury virgins under it. But that's a real legend in the city of Saigon. That's a real hotel. Now, one of the stories was from Reddit's No Sleep subreddit, which is like horror-based. Some people say it's real. Some people say it's fake. But it's easy to get tricked with no sleep. If, you, if you're not familiar with the subreddit, if someone just goes, hey, you got to read this crazy story from Vietnam. It was about a guy, a tunnel rat. It was about a guy who was crawling through tunnels in Vietnam who ran into ghosts. He ran into ghosts down there, which makes sense because, you know, they're super spooky. Tunnels are super spooky anyways, and these things are death traps. Those were three of the stories. This was the fourth one. And the reason why I wanted to set that up, because two of those stories are true. William and Jerry and the Saigon Hotel. The No Sleep one may or may not have been. It's, you know, it's spooky tunnel stuff. The last one was this, though. I found this really odd. He said that uh, Blake Stilwell tells a story about how when the Marines got into Vietnam, the first thing they did was find locals to help guide them through the jungles. There's a indigenous group of people in Vietnam known as the Montanard is the indigenous people there. They hated the North Vietnamese. They're like, yeah, we'll totally help you. But we're not taking you through there. Marines look and they're just pointing, just pointing to the jungle. And they're like, well, we need to know the jungle. He goes, yeah, we'll show you like that jungle over there, that lightly, that lightly jungled jungle. And over here where there is no jungle, it's a river, but not there. Not in the jungle itself. The deeper it gets, Mm-mm-mm. we're not going to do that. Marines are like, what are you talking about? This whole country is basically a jungle. They said, you got to understand, in the jungle lives the maw. In Vietnam culture, maw is basically a catch-all term for any sort of supernatural being. It could be a uh, friendly poltergeist. It could be a horrible, malevolent spirit. It could be a demon. It could be a cryptid. It's a maw. So we'll lead you all around the jungle, but we're not going to go in there. 1965, top brass of the U.S. military starts getting reports of Marines encountering things in the trees. And they're like, Viet Cong, did you shoot them? And they're like, no, no, no. They were moving too fast to be human. And they just get written down in a report somewhere and filed away. But these reports kept coming out. The Marines are like, we know why the guides won't lead us deep into the jungle. Because the problem is, is whatever these things are, live in darkness. And the jungle is so thick in some places, there is no sunlight coming through the canopy. It could be in the middle of the afternoon, and there's a creature up in the tree. 
Fill out a little report. File it away. You began to have incidents where Marines were coming back and saying, we had a firefight with something. Okay, what was it? Was it a tank? Was it a bunch of vehicles? No, 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 no. Something came out of the trees. And they're like, great. <laughs> starting to write it down. These things are being reported to be bulletproof. They could move too quickly. Sometimes they would have fangs, glowing eyes. Sometimes, as troops were moving through the jungle, one of them would be swiftly snatched away. And they would catch a glimpse of their fellow soldier being dragged up into the jungle. They'd go for pursuit, obviously. Maybe they would find him dead. Or maybe they wouldn't find him at all. Write it down in a report. Uh, Blake Stilwell ends his article with this. He says, These stories of soldiers being snatched away, of being devoured by these creatures that were bulletproof, that were too fast to stop, is the real reason why Agent Orange was used in Vietnam. Agent Orange was a defoilant. You would just pour it out of helicopters and airplanes, and it would land on trees, and they'd all melt, and then you would basically have a big old flat area that you could see for a mile. Much easier to move tanks and troops through. And a lot harder to hide in if it's just an open plane. I had to do a bunch of research on Agent Orange. I actually have personal experience with Agent Orange. My uncle was exposed to it in Vietnam. He was in a helicopter. He served in Vietnam. He was in combat in Vietnam. He would talk about... You just have barrels of Agent Orange just sitting out in the open. Like, nobody knew. I mean, it rotted plants to the root, right? The government's like, it's totally fine. It's named after orange. What orange thing can you think is bad? And people are like, yeah, so I guess you're right. He was exposed to it. He's had some neurological... Well, he's had quite a few neurological issues due to it. But Agent Orange is a real thing. We know it was used in Vietnam. It's a very, very bold claim to say that's why it was used in Vietnam. Was to destroy the jungles so they could get rid of the maw. It could be a tongue-in-cheek joke at the end of the article. It could be something that people who really, really know military history... Because defoilants were used before Vietnam. They were used in, like, a Malaysian conflict that um, British, the British were involved in. That was the first time they were used widespread in war. But it would be a weird joke to make at the end of an article involving dead virgins and a man mourning not saying goodbye to his friend. And then the no sleep one. Which, to be honest, I didn't read that one. It was like six parts. It was it had to be at least 10,000 words. I was like, ghost in the tunnel, get it. Maybe it's the best thing ever written. Maybe it's 100% true. I didn't have time. But So out of the four stories, one I didn't read, two of them are real. It would be weird in the ending to kind of make a joke about something that, one, Agent Orange it resulted in massive lawsuits from soldiers against the government. That's the real reason why you guys have neurological damage, veterans. It was to kill the ghost. I'm wondering if there is any truth to this. Were there really U.S. troops fighting ghosts in Vietnam? That's obviously the most interesting question. But two, is it possible that that's a common conspiracy theory among veterans? Not that it was actually true, but that veterans actually have started to surmise the real reason why chemical warfare was used in Vietnam was not to choke out the food supply of the Viet Cong or to destroy their cover, but was for some more sinister reason. Jungles are always a place of hidden secrets. Sometimes you can be walking through the jungle and find the ruins of a civilization no one ever knew existed. It was 500 feet off the beaten path, covered in vines, 
Sometimes you can be walking through the jungle and injure yourself and lay there for days, maybe weeks, screaming out in pain, screaming out for help. But even those who want to find you never can. The jungle may be one of the most hostile, livable environments on Earth. Deserts and Arctic wastelands just aren't there for humans to live in. But you can live a pretty good life in a jungle if you know the layout. If you don't, the jungle will swallow you whole. When the U.S. military dropped hundreds of thousands of troops into a foreign jungle, they faced all sorts of obstacles other than the Viet Cong. From disease, from predators, from hidden traps, the jungle was a whole new battle environment for the soldiers of the U.S. military to fight in. But it's possible there was another foe they were fighting there, a supernatural foe. Something that never got reported back home, but that the soldiers still remember. That day they were out with their platoon, they encountered something, and every bullet was fired, and it wouldn't stop coming. This would be one of those stories that the U.S. military would never let get out. They would cover it up as some sort of superstition. They wouldn't want the world to know that there was some sort of supernatural creature that was engaging their troops in Vietnam. And not because of some sort of bizarre cover-up, not because of some sort of Illuminati thing where they want to keep people from knowing the truth. It's actually more sinister than that. This thing, this maw, whatever it was, would be the perfect soldier. The military wouldn't want to kill it. They'd want to capture it. Bulletproof? Agile? Relentless? Why wouldn't you want that on your side? They could have dumped the Agent Orange to make these things easier to find. Not easier to kill. Even if it killed a hundred U.S. soldiers, even if it killed a thousand U.S. soldiers, that would be a small price to pay to get something like that in the hands of the U.S. government. Because if they knowingly exposed their own soldiers to a neurological toxin, they would be willing to do anything to obtain the ultimate weapon. And the ultimate weapon would be a creature like the Maw. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Mm-hmm.